Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. If you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter and chapter number 1. We are continuing with our series of the Holy Scriptures and each week we've been kind of highlighting a certain aspect of the doctrine of the Bible. We took a week to explore the, the doctrine of inspiration that God's the one who gave us the Scriptures. We took time to talk about different attributes of the Bible, about its accuracy, about its inerrancy. We took some time to talk about the preservation of God's Word. And this week what we're doing is we're highlighting the idea of the interpretation of Scripture. That we want to make sure that we have the correct interpretation of Scripture. In fact, can we have a correct interpretation of Scripture? Well, we start off with that answer in the book of 2 Peter and chapter number 1. The book of 2 Peter, chapter number 1, and if you don't mind, notice with me in verse number 20. The book of 2 uh, Peter, chapter number 1, and verse number 20. We know that we've hit this verse or this passage over and over and over because this is a key passage of Scripture in dealing with the Scriptures. Notice with me in 2 Peter, chapter 2, and verse number 20. Chapter 1 and verse 20. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And notice if you don't mind the phrase, if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, in the book of 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20, notice this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Notice that again, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And with this, we want to hit a message dealing with the idea of biblical interpretation. Biblical interpretation. Well, if you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a wonderful God. And as we come up to you today, I'm just asking that you would just give us grace, that you would give us mercy, that you would give us understanding, that you are the author of the Bible. And because you're the author of the Bible, you can tell us what you meant when you wrote it. I'm asking that we would have proper interpretation now on how to interpret the Bible, that we could see that we could depend upon your spirit, that you could guide us into all truth, and that we could get exactly what you you intended us to have. Lord, help us now that it would be clear, that it would be understandable, that it would be a help and equip your saints for their own study of your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we come to this text of 2 Peter chapter number 1, we've hit it dealing with the idea of inspiration. That in verse number 21, it spoke about that the Holy Spirit moved them 
And they spake as the Holy Spirit moved them. It was the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible. And verse number 20 is where we want to put the attention this time. It says, knowing this first, this is a phrase that said, this is important, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. What that means is that the Bible does not mean something to you and means something different to me. That we are not supposed to study the Bible to find out what does it mean to me. In fact, what we are supposed to do is study the Bible to find out what God meant by the scriptures. We call this study of Bible interpretation a big fancy word called hermeneutics. Everything has to have a special title, so this is its special title, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of biblical interpretation. That's an actual fancy word that's developed. It's the proper way to to interpret the scripture. We want to develop our interpretation of the Bible to find out what God meant when he wrote this. Now, this makes sense when you look at everyone who claims to use the Bible and then we looked at the spectrum of Christendom religions. Why do we have so many people that do so many different things? Well, it is because they are trying to find out what the Bible means to them rather than trying to find honestly what did God mean when he gave this scripture. And when we take the time to study the Bible correctly, when anyone follows the rules of basic hermeneutics, of basic Bible interpretation, they will come out through the study of God's word, a biblicist. Someone who believes the word of God, and they will come out to very close to believing the same thing. And so we're not just freaks of nature. We are someone who's trying to study God's word, not to find out what does it mean to me, but we're trying to find out What did God mean when he wrote it? Now, to underline this, to kind of get across this, there's a couple things I want to build across so you would have an understanding of what we're talking about and how we got there. First of all, I'd like to kind of bring to your attention to teach you like a class. There are two main ways of Bible interpretation. There are two main ways a biblical interpretation. The first way is called allegorical interpretation. Allegorical. For those of you who are spelling challenged, let me help you. A-L-L-E-G-O-R-I-C-A-L. It is fine for you to smile. It's okay. All right. Allegorical. Now, the idea of allegorical interpretation is simply this. It is spiritualizing the text. Spiritualizing the text. What do you mean by that? That someone who's looking for an allegorical interpretation, it looks for meaning beyond the written text. It takes what is written and it tries to look for some spiritual, deeper, darker, secret meaning. It's looking for a symbolic representation. Instead of the actual words, they're using those to try to not define the normal sense of the but they're looking for the symbolic sense. And what happens is it ends up coming up with a different meaning than what the words actually convey. So when someone who does an allegorical interpretation, they'll take something like the book of Genesis. Instead of reading the book of Genesis like history, they'll say this is picturesque language to try to describe to the ancient peoples how God 
got across things. And so we know that God didn't really mean days, that they're actually errors of time. But in order to kind of get across in our mind, we just have to understand that this is pictorial language and that days actually mean millions of years. And so what happens is that you kind of take apart Genesis you take Adam and Eve. They're not real Adam and Eve. There was no person named Adam. There was no person named Eve. This is symbolic that God loved all of the evolutionary creatures. And he just happened to choose some group of monkeys and apes that he thought would develop well. And he chose that out of these ones, these are the ones he was going to put his special care and blessing on. By the way, I'm not making that up. This is what several Bible teachers teach. And so what they do is they come up with an allegorical thing that you don't read this as a history book. You don't read it as literal text. That there's symbolic and hidden meanings everywhere. And that you have to try to um, imagine, interpret, that you have to get the symbology right. And what happens is that uh, <laughs> it becomes more subjective that it's whatever I think it may be, whatever my imagination brings up to. By the way, as you could kind of see the undercurrent, I'm not for allegorical interpretation. It is not correct interpretation of the scripture. However, it is a very, very common and well-used interpretation of scripture that many of the Christendom religions rely upon. By the way, that means I can make the Bible say whatever I want if I try hard enough. That becomes very dangerous. Now, there's a different way of interpretation in the Bible. It is a literal interpretation of the Bible. Now, the idea of a literal is that we take things literally. We take not all, or some things literally, we take it all literally. Even the pictorial fictitious. Uh, figurative language. We understand that there's figurative language in the Bible and that's because we think in pictures. And so if you can get something in your mind, you can get it across. However, we take those pictures literally in its understanding. May I give you an example? If I could say that someone is happy as a lark, do I literally mean they're a lark? No, but I could literally understand I am giving a picture to symbolize they are happy. All right, that, I'm still taking it literally. What does that passage mean? It means they're happy. It doesn't mean that, well, they had a dream that they were a lark and they kind of feel free as a bird and that they're going up, singing up in the air. Some people would take it that way, okay? By the way, literal interpretation is the idea of the correct way that God expected the Bible to be incorrect, to interpret it. Literally. So we started off that there are two main ways. Now I said main because there's other ways. There's one called the Barthian way. It's neither here nor there, but I'm just kind of an example. The Barthian way says the Bible is not inspired until you read it. And when it speaks to you, that's the inspiration. That's what some people do. I could go on and on. But there are two main ways. There's allegorical, which sees pictorial, symbolic language everywhere. And then there's the literal interpretation of scripture. By the way, that is the biblical means. That's the biblical understanding that it is to take, be taken literally. You say, really? That means Genesis is literal? Yeah, I believe it's a history book, not a mythology. I believe it is literally true. 
So let's come to, as we're building up blocks and we are kind of understanding, you guys are at least nodding your head and no one's trying to throw me off by saying we take the Bible literally. Let's now ask the question now. The second thing I want to bring to you is why interpret literally? If I say that interpreting the Bible literally is the biblical method, it is the true method, it's what God wants us to have, the question should be followed up. Why do you believe that? Why should the Bible be followed literally? Well, let me bring a couple answers for you. First of all, because of the purpose of language. Because of the purpose of language. God had many, had given man language with the purpose of being able to communicate with God. That's how we communicate with God, by the way, is through language. We don't communicate with God with language with just symbols we, God has given us language to be able to communicate to him. To express our love to him. And through that language we could speak to each other. But God has given us language so he, we could communicate to him. And the reverse, he could communicate to us. God created language and being an all wise God. He saw that language was sufficient to get across the purpose of communication. May I give an example? I have my wife here. Honey, I want to express to you my something bubbling in me and my heart goes thump thump and I hear the, the winged creatures up there and they chirp out in the air and, 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 and it seems like the, that, that flaming ball thing, it, it seems to shine brighter when I'm around you and it just, I got a tingly inside of me and, and, and I can't, I don't know how to tell you to get you to understand what I'm getting across. No, God has made it so I can speak literally to her and she doesn't have to guess what in the world is this maniac trying to get across. I love you. And because of language, she can understand what I mean without having an interpreter, without trying to investigate my hidden meanings. Well, he said he loved me, but what he really meant was, no, no, she can understand that I can express what I literally mean to her. Thankful, I'm thankful that we have language and God has given us language. And because of the purpose of language, we could directly communicate our thoughts to someone else. Now, because God has given us language, we can expect that God could communicate us in a way that we're not guessing. He could say, this is what I mean. Well, good. There's no guessing. This is what he means. When God said, let there be light, did he know what he was saying? Yes. When God said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Was God smart enough to communicate exactly what he meant by that? We don't have to interpret that and say, well, that whosoever is not just whosoever. It's only a few select people. And what God meant by that is that God gave his son, but it's not really his son. It was just a chosen person that he decided to put his powers. We don't have to go through all of that. We could expect that God knew what he was getting across and communicate it in such a way that we could easily understand. Why interpret things literally? First of all, because of the purpose of language. The purpose of language is to get across a clear concept to someone else in a way that 
I can express myself and they can easily understand. We also believe that God is smart enough that he doesn't have to communicate any other way, but in a way that we would recognize in a way that we could say, I understand what you mean. The Bible is a communication. We can understand it and understand what God meant by it. A second reason why we believe to interpret things literally is the need of objectivity. The need for objectivity. What do I mean by that? Well, there's some people that believe there are some things we take literally and there are some things that we take allegorically. And so they would take something like the gospel records. Well, that's talking about Jesus. That's literal. But when we get to Revelation, you don't take that literal. It is all, it is wild, wild west. You just, whatever you feel like, we can't know what it means for sure. Well, is there some things that God says, you take this literally, but don't worry about this over here. What happens when you start mixing and matching is therefore you don't have a consistency. You don't have an objectivity. Now you have people are saying, well, this is literal. This is not. This is literal. Who's not? Who's the one that determines whether it's literal or not? Well, if we believe that the entire Bible's literal, it no longer depends on me to try to figure it out, meaning my own interpretation. I could find out what did God mean when he wrote that. Does that make sense? God has made it so it's easy, and I don't have to worry about inconsistent or contradictory interpretations, which develop if I believe that this is literal and this is not. May I give an example? Again, I'm treating this as a class and I'll give you several examples. There are some people that believe that the life of Christ is literal. That Jesus lived, that he taught. However, because Jesus used pictorial language, that he could not get the right words when discussing hell. So when he's talked about hell, even though it talked about fire and brimstone, hell is not really hell, that it's actually the grave. And that when you die, you don't, in, without Christ, you don't, go to hell, hell, there's no such thing. You just get put in the ground and put six feet under and, and that's it. Well, do you think Jesus was smart enough to express what he literally meant? And so if when you die without Christ, that if you just went into the ground, do you think Jesus was smart enough to express, hey, you went into the ground? Absolutely. In fact, Jesus goes a little bit further when people said, Jesus, what's hell's like? He would say, come with me. And it would go to the south side of Jerusalem and there was a, uh, a valley called the Valley of Tophet, the Valley of Hinnom. And in this Valley of Hinnom was the trash heap of the city of Jerusalem for hundreds of years. Well, after hundreds of years, the valley would begin to fill up. So someone got the bright idea to catch the thing on fire. And so it became the burning trash heap for the city of Jerusalem to get rid of their waste for hundreds of years. So when someone said, Jesus, what's hell like? He would say, come here. Look, the valley of Hinnom, which by the way is a that phrase got turned to Gehenna to hell. It, to, we would understand hell, but when he would speak, it was Gehenna. He would say, look, that is what hell is like. Where the fire dieth not, the worm dieth not. That is what hell was like. And all the people that was with him, did they think that he meant the grave? No, he's pointing to a fire and say, that's what hell is like. Was there any mystical language there was no 
Jesus was smart enough to understand what he meant. And he, when he pointed to hell or to the fire, he said that's what hell is like. That's what everyone understood him saying. Does that make sense? But some people will say, well, that's just figurative language or um, pictorial language, allegorical language. So what happens is that you have some things in the life of Christ that's literal. And then some things that he said are not literal. And what happens is you get things confused, you get things contradictory, and you turn into a mess. By the way, is a lot of Christendom a mess today? Absolutely. Why? Because of their inconsistent interpretation of Scripture. I'm not making, uh, (laughs) um, not trying to be mean, I'm just giving a discerning evaluation of where we're at and why. And why it's important. So, why interpret literally? Well, for the purpose of language. Language was meant and developed for the purpose of us communicating ideas clearly. We know that we have the need of objectivity to make sure that we have a consistent basis of interpreting the Bible. That it's not this way uh, in this passage and a different way in this passage. We interpret the entire Bible literally. A third one is by the example of the Bible. The Bible is, interprets itself literally. May I give an example? Or many of them. The prophecies of the first coming of Jesus Christ were all fulfilled literally. There are over 300 passages dealing with Jesus Christ coming the first time. And each of those passages we find in the Old Testament, we interpret them literally. Okay, let me give an example. The book of Micah chapter 5 says Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Was that literally fulfilled? You mean that wasn't just a picture that Bethlehem is actually a picture of some house in the sky where there was a baker's house? He must have been born in a baker's house. No, he was born literally in Bethlehem. Well, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was going to be born Uh, excuse me, that he was going to be born of a virgin. Do we interpret that literally? Was he literally born of a virgin? Absolutely. That's a very important piece dealing with the deity of Jesus Christ. You take that away, you do not have the deity of Jesus Christ. You understand? We're talking about things literally. It talked about, we read in a passage today, that Jesus was going to speak in parables. Was that literally fulfilled? Absolutely. So every passage, every passage dealing with Jesus Christ's first coming was literally fulfilled. Well, if all of those were literally fulfilled, should we expect the rest of the prophecies to be literally fulfilled? Absolutely. That's to be consistent. So if the Bible interprets itself literally, we should follow suit and also interpret the Bible literally. All right, we're still with us. No one's leaving. No one's, uh, everyone's following, right? So again, we're building a case that the Bible interprets itself literally. So let's now come to this. How do we properly interpret? Now we talked about uh, the idea, the method of it. The method is literal. So how do we get the correct literal meaning? So, how do we interpret things literally? Well, let's go to the Bible and kind of get an idea of what's involved to start off with. 2 Timothy chapter number 2. 2 Timothy chapter number 2. 
2 Timothy chapter number 2. And let's understand this method of how to interpret things literally. How do we properly interpret the Bible? Well, let's see the Bible, what it says here. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, study. Study to show thyself approved. Notice this, unto God. We're not to study to show ourselves approved to the Pope, to the church, to the board, to the world. Our goal is to be approved unto God. Guess what? It's a test and he's the one checking your answers. If he's the one checking your answers, you want to be correct according to the one checking your answers. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Notice this, a workman. You know why some people have a hard time properly interpreting the Bible? Because it's a four letter word, work. It's work. It takes work to properly interpret. It's not, well, I read this once and I think I know what this means. It takes work. Now, by the way, you could be equipped to do the work and we're going to try to equip you to do the work, but it is work and it is study. It's not the idea of just being diligent. It's the idea of studying to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Now, what is he going to be ashamed of? Well, when he stands before God, I'd hate to go before God and said, you know what? I've been teaching your Bible wrong the whole time. That would be a bad day, wouldn't it? God, we want to stand before God and said, I did things the way that you asked us to, and I taught your Bible the way that you wanted it to get across. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, notice this, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, if there's a right way to divide the truth, that means it's implied there is a wrong way to divide the truth. And so, if there is a right way and there's a wrong way, now let me pause this. There are some people that says there's no wrong way to interpret the scripture. That whatever you think it is, that's what it is. Those people are wrong. There's a right way to divide the word of truth. And there are many wrong ways to divide the word of truth. Our goal is to be approved unto God. And I want to encourage you that you can know. You don't need a Bible guru. You don't need a Bible degree. You don't need a set of commentaries. You need the Holy Spirit and the desire to work and study properly. That's, you don't need a preacher to interpret the Bible, you need the Holy Spirit and a Bible. And God can give you to it. Now, th we're thankful for the preacher. We'll get into messages about the Holy Spirit giving us light later on. And we're thankful that God can use a preacher. But I'm telling you, you don't need a spiritual guru. You don't need a teacher. You can learn to read the Bible and properly interpret it for yourself. So how do we do this? Well, first of all, we interpret it grammatically. We interpret it grammatically. Meaning that the meaning of any passage must be determined by the study of its words. Right? We communicate using words. And so if we want to get across the correct idea, we have to use the right word. For example, honey, I have a deep feeling inside of you and I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of like like, but it's more than like. All right? Is, if I tell my wife that I like her all the time, is that getting across the exact meaning of what I hope to convey to her? 
No. So words are important, right? My wife would not be happy if I just told her the rest of the life that I like her. She wants to hear, I love her. She wants to hear the right words, right? There's a test that's going to go on. And if I don't get the right words, I'm going to pay for it later on. I got to study to myself to prove unto her, right? To make sure I'm getting across the right idea. Now, we have to interpret things grammatically. That means you have to have a knowledge of words. Now, that's important because we know in our English language today, words change meanings. For example, many of us are familiar with the word cool. The word cool in my lifetime has changed five different times. I don't even know what definition of cool we're on today. I, it, it's, it's changed a bunch. It used to be cool, but you can't say cool no more because the cool, cool kids don't say cool anymore. Right? I, they've, they've changed the word cool. Uh, the word gay has changed in our lifetime. That before, it just meant that I'm happy and floating on air. Now it means something completely different. And so we have to be able to understand words. That's one of the privileges we have of having our Bible in an old English language is that we don't have to keep up with the language. We could go back and find out what did that word mean when it was given to us. That's a great privilege that we could find and see what that word meant. Understanding that words are important and if I don't have the right definition of the word, I'm not going to get the right interpretation of the word. Does that make sense? So we have to study it grammatically. That also carries the idea of how the words are put together. When um, I had the privilege of going back to seminary, I already had a medical degree. And um, when I went back, I could have clept a lot of those basic classes. But I decided I was going to go back and uh, forgive the personal illustration. I decided I was going to go back and assume I knew nothing. And so I was going to take every class again, whether it was computer classes or English grammar. And I'm so glad I did. When I came out of Bible college and masters and all of the other stuff, as I look back, the greatest class that helped me with my personal Bible study was English grammar. It was surprising because I thought it was the most worthless class ever. I mean, what in the world? Diagramming sentences. Why in the world would I want to do that? What's an adverb? An adjective? What's a preposition? How does that work in? Who cares? I just want a sandwich. <laughs> but to be able to understand how grammar works and how it places together and what does it mean when an adjective is modifying a noun? What about the idea of a pronoun and how do they work? What in the world is an antecedent? Those things are integral for us to understand language. To be able to get across the right meaning. That's why we don't speak like, you love sandwich now. <laughs> I could throw out a bunch of words there and hope that she gets the right meaning. But the idea of correct grammar is going to convey the correct meaning in a way that she understands it or anyone else would understand it. To be able to string sentences together in a proper way. Well, when you understand how things work, you understand what a subject is, what a direct object is, how they fit together in a sentence. Those things tremendously help getting the correct 
idea of the Bible. Now, why do so many people have a hard time reading the Bible today? Because English grammar is no longer taught properly. They're just trying to get people, they've lost the ability to read and to write. And so now they have a hard time understanding the Bible. By the way, I believe that is a spiritual thing going on that Satan is trying to put into our education system to keep people from reading their Bible because they can't understand it because they don't understand how grammar in our language works. All right, so we interpret things grammatically. We have an understanding of the words and how they're put together. We also interpret contextually, contextually, that whenever you're going to interpret scripture, there are certain questions you need to be able to ask. If you've never written down these questions, please write them down now. Use them as a list, have them together. And anytime that you read your Bible, you should ask yourself these questions. By the way, studying is not hard if you know what the tools are. And so if you want to understand the passage, there are certain questions that you need to be able to ask. First of all, who is speaking? Well, that's pretty important to know who is speaking. If Satan's speaking, don't we take that a little bit differently than if Jesus is speaking? So it does matter who speaks. Who is speaking? Peter, does he say things different than um, Judas Iscariot? So that's important to understand. Who is speaking? A second question you need to ask yourself. Who is the audience? Who is the audience? When Jesus Christ spoke to people, there was, you had to always take into account the audience that Jesus was speaking to. There were times Jesus spoke to the multitudes. There are times that Jesus is speaking to the disciples. There are times that Jesus is talking to an individual. And there are times that he's talking to the Pharisees. Did Jesus speak differently to the Pharisees than he did the masses? You bet he did. Did Jesus sometimes say things to an individual that would not necessarily apply to the multitude? Absolutely. And so you have to ask the second question. Who is the audience? Who are they speaking to? So first of all, who is speaking? And then who are they speaking to? Who is the audience? The third thing, what are they saying? Now, that's kind of what you're looking for. But you look for it, English grammar, understanding words. What are they saying? For example, I'm going to, you know, to my wife. If I say, I love you, and someone recorded that down, did they have to say, I wonder what he meant by this? All right? We should be able to say, what is he saying? So if I say, hey, hell is real. Someone read that transcript and say, I wonder what he's trying to get across here. What are they saying? Just look and see what are they saying. It's not that hard, but... People mess up on that one all the time. What are they saying? Not what do you think they're saying? What is their hidden meaning? What are they saying? And then, how did the audience understand what it to mean? Now that's important because the idea of how the audience responded, remember that when Jeremiah is speaking, he's not speaking to people in the year 2000, 20, whatever we're at now. He's speaking to people at 500 BC. Has culture and times and understanding changed in those 2,500 years? Or 
Yeah, tw- that's a lot of changes. And so he's not speaking to millennials. Okay? We have to understand the audience. Don't we speak differently to millennials than we do baby boomers? Yes. <laughs> How did they understand? So if I talk to a baby boomer and I speak to them about work, they have an understanding what I mean. But if I say the same thing about work to a millennial, do they not understand what I'm meaning completely? Yes, I'm picking on millennials now. Okay? You understand? Different audience understands things differently. And so you have to understand that within a biblical audience. Do lost people understand things differently than saved? Will Old Testament Hebrew people understand things differently than a Gentile Christian? Absolutely. And so we have to take into account what did the audience understand what was being said. Then, here's a big one that's a big help. What application was expected from the audience? What did he want them to do? If I go tell someone, hey, go close that door. What is the expectation? Expectation? Whatever. What is the expected result? Someone go close the door, right? What is it that they expected him to do? Now, there are times that the expectation is for them to get right with God. What is it? What is, that's part of getting the meaning. If I tell you that hell is real, but I'm telling you in a message, what is my expectation? Am I expecting you to go to hell? No. What am I expecting you to do with that information? Change your ways. Does that make sense? I'm giving you this message for the purpose of you to change your ways. Not to be mean to you. Not to tell you, guess what? You're going there. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm giving you information for the purpose of you doing something about it. What was the audience expected to do with that result? That's a big key of interpreting things. So if you see... Jonah saying, in 40 days, God is going to destroy Nineveh. What is God's expectation result for Nineveh? For them to get right. He didn't give them that message just to say, well, you know what, you're done. Sign your name. Sell everything you have. No, he wanted them to get right. That was the expect, expect, I can't say that stupid word. That was the word, the That was what was supposed to get accomplished there. So that is part of getting across the correct interpretation is to see what was the application. How was it applied? What was expected of them? All right. And then this another question. What do we learn about God from that passage? Remember, the whole purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to man. So what do we learn about God from that passage? We were just talking about Jonah. What do we learn about that passage from Jonah? That God's not willing that any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. We learn something about God there. So if God's not willing that any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance, is there anyone that God says, nope, you're done, you're going to hell whether you want to or not? There's nothing you can do about it. No, because that's not consistent. What do we learn about God? All right, let's try a passage and see how we do. Turn with me to John 14. John chapter 14. And let's see if we can get across something here, working with our 
basic rules of interpretation. John chapter 14. And notice with me, if you don't mind, John 14. And look with me in verse 1. John 14 and verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there ye may be also and whether I go ye know and the way you know all right so let's pause here let's go over the questions first of all who is speaking well it's easy if you have a red letter bible who is speaking Jesus let's treat this as a class all right so Jesus now, here's a second question. Who is he speaking to? Who is the audience? Well, if you don't mind, let me just help out with this. In chapter 13 through 17, Jesus Christ has finished the Last Supper and he is walking with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that in a few short hours, Jesus Christ is going to be arrested and he's going to be put on trial. And he's taking some time to speak to his disciples to give them some last minute instructions so they can continue on past Jesus' death. So again, I gave it to you. We see this in chapter 13 as he begins to wash the disciples' feet, 13.5. And then it talks about Peter uh, not wanting to wash his feet. And then he continues on and then um, continues to speak to them. Judas Iscariot leaves. And then um, he continues that same context. So he's speaking to the disciples. You can look in the chapter. Sometimes you have to look in the same chapter or the chapter before or the chapter after, but you want to get the context, especially who is speaking. So who's speaking? Who's he speaking to? The disciples. Very good. All right. So let's ask the second question. What is he saying? Well, he's saying, I'm leaving guys and I'm going to go build you a mansion. And by the way, when I'm done, I'm coming back for you. Is that literally what he's saying? Yes. yes. So we could easily understand with his words, what is he saying? Now, here's a key here. How did the audience understand what was being said? Well, in those days, they had a Jewish custom. By the way, this is why you need to know manners and customs and how they would understand things. In the Jewish custom... Whenever someone was contractually obligated to get married, meaning that they're going to get married, they're not married yet, but they're going to get married, what would happen is that the husband-to-be would go and build a house for his bride. Now, pause. That would a novel idea for a young man to already have a job and have a house and have things set up before he gets married? Either. But... <laughs> That's what happened in the Jewish custom is that he would go and he would have a house already prepared and built for his bride. And in that Jewish custom, he did not determine when he was done, but his father would oversee the work. Now, in that time, because they didn't know uh, when the 
house would be done, they did not set wedding dates like December 6th at 1 o'clock. But what would happen is that the bride had to always be waiting for her husband because he could come at any time. Could be morning, could be noon, could be evening, could be soon. All I know is that he is coming again. And so she would have to always be ready for whenever he was done. Meanwhile, the son would have no, um, the the groom-to-be wouldn't have any physical communication with his wife. She just had to be waiting for him to return. And the father, when he thinks that the son is done, he would oversee the work and say, the house is done, it's prepared, I now approve it, this is a place where your bride can live at. Go get your bride. And then the groom would come back. Go get his bride. The wedding would happen immediately. And he would take her home to the house that he just built for her. So this was a custom that the Jewish people were very familiar with. And Jesus is using that custom to say this. Notice with me, verse number one, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now remember, in a few short hours, he's going to be arrested and put on the cross. This is a big deal. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Things are well in hand. He says, what's going to happen? In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Meaning, I'm telling you the truth. And he goes, I go to prepare a place for you. I know that you think they're killing me, but I'm not. I'm leaving for a while because I'm going to go do something to go build you a house. And if I go and prepare a place for you, again, this is part of that Jewish custom, I will come again. Now, imagine this. What if a guy was about ready to get married to his bride and he goes and builds a house and spends all this time and effort to go get his bride and then says, you know what, never mind, she's not worth the effort, forget it. Why would he go forth all the effort to build a house for her if he's not going to go get her? And so there was this idea, if I'm going to do all this work, I'm coming back for you. I'm not going to go put all this effort and work and not get my bride. I want my bride. And so he says, I'm going to build you a house and I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. He says, I'm giving you this promise that I'm coming again. All right. So here's the context. Jesus Christ is about ready to be crucified, killed, and he is going to, of course, be with him for 40 days, but they didn't understand that. And he was going to go to heaven. And when he goes to heaven, is he just saying, well, you know, guys, it was fun three and a half years. See you later. What he is telling them is, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But here is the expected result. I'm coming again. So what was the expected application for the disciples? What was he trying to get across to them? He's coming again. Wasn't that a hope-filled message for them? Especially in the next couple hours, their world is going to be turned upside down. But they had in their mind that Jesus gave them a promise. He is coming back for them. By the way, we still have that same promise as the bride of Christ. He's coming back for us. I know we've been waiting for a long time, but he's going to keep his word. He is coming back. He, he promised. That is the expectate, uh, ex, I can't say that stupid word. That is the expected result. He is coming back. Jesus Christ is coming back. And there are many people that said Jesus hasn't come back. That means he's not. They've given up on the promise. 
There are some people that say, well, Jesus never said he's coming back. Well, he did right here. Isn't that what was literally said? I am coming back for you. Isn't that how they understood the meaning from their, their, their custom, which he used? Yes, he is coming back. What is literally going to happen? He's coming back. So again, by the way, that wasn't hard. We just used our understanding. Who is speaking? What, who are they speaking to? What did he say? How did the audience understand? How did they apply it to themselves? What was the expected result? And by the way, what do we learn about God from this passage? That Jesus Christ is coming back. That's good enough. He's coming back. He promised to keep his word. All right. Well, as we talk about biblical interpretation, let's try to finish up now. We also have the idea of comparing scripture with scripture. If you have never written this down, comparing scripture with scripture, write this down. The greatest interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. The greatest interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. If you want to find out what the Bible means, read the Bible. The Bible will tell you what it means. We can compare the scripture. The Bible is consistent in itself. It doesn't contradict itself. And so there are some passages that give better understanding to less clear passages. We could see, compare scripture with scripture. And then one last thing, which is very key, and I want to try to spend some time on this, what we have left. Recognize the progressiveness of scripture. The progressiveness of scripture. Now what do I mean by this? We understand that God's revelation is given progressively. What do we mean by that? Is that God started off in seed form in Genesis. And let those uh, doctrines grow and continue to germinate. And continue to form over time. What that means is that as you read your Bible from cover to cover, that God begins to give more and more understanding to it. God would sometimes add, change, modify, clarify some things that he taught on before. We have to understand that the Bible is a progressive revelation. Now, why do I say that? Because there are some people who don't read the Bible from cover to cover. They just pick a passage and open it up. And what happens is that they miss this building upon each other that God is trying to get across. We know that the New Testament adds much more that was not revealed in the Old Testament. He gives clarity. He gives understanding. So those who fail to understand this progressiveness in Revelation will find in res, um, unresolvable contradictions between passages even if we try to take them literally. Let's take a pause here. All right. Almost all of us have probably heard this. Someone will say, I believe the Bible. Oh, you believe the Bible, so I guess you don't eat pork. Well, does the Bible say that we're not supposed to eat pork? To the Jewish people, are we Jewish people? Has God now clarified that statement in the New Testament? He has. So we understand that there are different things that God will build upon and give clarification on. Are there some things that he allowed in the New Testament that he doesn't allow today? Yes. Or in the Old Testament that he allows today? Yes. Are there some things in the Old Testament that he's done away with and says, guess what? It's not for you. 
Yes. So we have to understand that the Bible is progressive. We watch people do this all the time who have no clue about the Bible. Who says, oh, you believe the Bible? Then I guess you're, you obey the Bible? Yes. Then I guess you obey this and give some obscure Old Testament law. What they don't understand is the progressiveness. And what's even worse is that the Christian doesn't understand progressive. And so he stands there going. And lets the person just run over them. Well, I thought you believed the Bible. Then how come this? Well, there's a simple thing. We believe in the progressive revelation of the Bible. That it builds upon each other, clarifies, and explains it. As the scriptures go on. By the way, that's why it's important for you to read your Bible from cover to cover. So that way you can understand that progressive revelation. It is very dangerous to say, well, my daily Bible reading is like this. I take my Bible, I open it up, and pick a passage and that's what I read today. Well, I appreciate them reading the Bible, but you are going to miss so much about what God is trying to teach you because you get things out of order and you don't let it build upon itself. You have a tower that's wobbly and full, and you're going to get to the place where you're not built up and you're going to have an inconsistent interpretation of the Bible because some of these things end up clashing together. For example, in the Bible, the Old Testament, they believed in animal sacrifices. So guess what? If you believe in the Bible, how many animals have you sacrificed? How about a more realistic one? Let me tell you, God has said in the Ten Commandments to honor the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Therefore, if you're going to be a true Bible believer, you have to go to church on Saturday. And if you don't go to church on Saturday, you're wrong with God. You've broken the commandments. You're not saved. Is there a group of people that teaches that? Yes. What we have there is what they said, true dealing is the Sabbath found on a Saturday in the Bible. It is. But does that mean that we as New Testament Christians are to obey the Sabbath as is going to church on Saturday? No. Why not? Progressive revelation. God has clarified and given us a better understanding of that doctrine of what he's trying to teach. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? And about worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. Does that make sense? So what happens is that people run into those conundrums all the time. We take the Bible literally, but they fail to take into account the progressive revelation of the Bible. I wish I could spend more time explaining that progressive revelation of the Bible. But what I'm trying to do is trying to get your toes wet. I'm trying to introduce to you this idea of Bible interpretation. And hopefully I'm trying to make it simple enough that you say, I can do that. Because you can do that. With the Holy Spirit's help saying, Holy Spirit, guide me. You could ask some basic questions to help you be on the correct path. Who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? What is he saying? What did they understand? What was the desired application? How do you see God? If you take those things, and by the way, it takes work. Not a lot of work, but it takes some work. It helps you to get to the correct interpretation. Does that make sense? So what do you do with such a thing? What is the expected application? I want you to study to show yourself approved. When you read your Bible, I want you to take these basic things and just take some time in your Bible reading. Just don't read your Bible and say, okay, I'm good. Take some time. Who's speaking here? 
Who is he speaking to? What is he saying? What are they understanding him to say? What is the desired outcome? And how do I see God? If you do this in your Bible, you can become a great Bible interpreter, not because you're a great guru, not because of how smart you are, not because of the degrees that you have. It's because you're just following the basic rules because God wants you to understand the Bible for yourself. That the Bible is not given of any private interpretation, but each of us can take the time and do it correctly to find out what God meant by the scriptures. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three oh six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.